Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. John 8, 32. He spoke of truth as real. Truth exists. He spoke of the truth. Truth is singular, static, and settled. And he spoke of knowing the truth. Truth is understandable and accessible. The words of Christ are simple, straight, and sure. You shall know the truth. The words of the secularist are a bit more convoluted, crooked, and confused. The secularist would say, I'm not really sure if that pen's on the ground or not. Take the words, if you will, of French novelist Gustave Flaubert, who said, there is no truth. Actually, he said, there is no truth. <laughs> there's only perception. Or then there's the German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who says, there are no facts, only interpretations. Then there's the Chinese diplomat, Hu Xi. I know you're thinking, I don't know, who is she? No, that's his name, Hu Xi, who said, only when we realize there is no eternal, unchanging truth or absolute truth can we arouse in ourselves a sense of intellectual responsibility. Or maybe you think of Walt Whitman, the American poet, who said, whatever satisfies the soul is truth. George Orwell said it well, that British author, who said, he observed that the very concept of objective truth is fading out of the world. He then predicted lies will pass into history. We're watching that happen before our eyes, are we not? You shall know the truth. Please understand, the rejection of truth is no ancient mindset of bygone generations or centuries. The rejection of truth is currently the typical mindset of Mr. Joe Average. Only 35% of American adults believe that there is absolute moral truth. Compare that with 44% who think that truth is relative. That means it changes with situations. From one circumstance to another, the truth might be different. Or truth is based on feelings and emotions. Worse than that are the 21% of American adults who have not seen truth as so important so much as to think about it. They've not given it much thought. We live in a world where with each generation, relativism, the idea that truth is relative, is gaining prominence. 39% of those before 1946, the oldest generation, believe truth is relative. 41% of baby, baby boomers, those born between 46 and 64. 44% of Generation X, born between 65 and 83. And then 51% of millennials, those born between 84 and 2002, the most recent generation, all of which have reached full maturity in adulthood. Over half believe truth is relative. It changes from place to place, person to person, situation to situation. We live in a society where relativism has a stranglehold on our very existence. In our world, the truth has become as out of date as sour milk, and it's been replaced with my truth and your truth. Take the words of Oprah Winfrey. Her name may be familiar, media mogul, the cultural icon, Diet expert extraordinaire, spiritual guru, 
Oprah said in her 2018 Golden Globe speech, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we have. Not the truth, mind you, but your truth. And then there's Tracy Emin, British unconventional artist, if we can use the term very loosely, who has said, what is truth? Truth doesn't really exist. Who can judge whether my experience of an incident is more valid than yours. No one can be trusted with that. Now both of these quips take the idea of my experience and your truth and they use those terms to portray personal perspective. And even in the, with the most honest and sincere of individuals, personal perspective is limited in scope and subject to subjectivity. Yet this mindset has taken the fractional sliver of the pie and exalted it above the pie. They've taken individual personal perspective of a portion of truth and exalted it above the law of rationality, which takes all of the available evidence and facts and arrives at a logical conclusion. My truth has been put above the truth. We live in a world where... The truth has now been supplanted by what a person wants to see. We live in a world where absolute truth has been supplanted by absolute selfishness. Now there are those that have espoused cultural selfishness. 65% of American adults believe that each culture must determine for itself what's right or wrong, true or untrue. That means the Nazis were just fine in 65% of Americans' minds. Now you take that forward. 57% believe that knowing what is right or wrong is a matter of personal experience. Thus, what is right and what is wrong is only gained by what I decide and all that I faced in life. They have espoused personal selfishness. 74% of millennials believe that whatever works best for you or what, what seems right to you is the only truth you can know. Now we should not be shocked that 74% of millennials have this mindset. What ought to scare us is that 41% of people who claim to be practicing Christians agree with that idea. They claim to follow Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. But they say, you know, truth is based on whatever you think. Good brethren have been sounding the alarm for decades. The following paragraph was printed 20 years ago by Apologetics Press. Notice the observation. Moral relativism has spread even into the realm of Christianity, causing faithful men and women to question scriptural absolutes and abandon clear biblical teaching. The Christian exegesis has shifted from the Bible says to I feel it in my heart and therefore know it to be true. Mm-hmm. Elders no longer execute mandated discipline. Preachers cease to teach the truth and preach only what is commonly acceptable. And those who teach moral and scriptural absolutism are branded as legalistic. They're branded as judgmental and as narrow-minded. That was 20 years ago. Has it gotten better, ladies and gentlemen? You shall know the truth, Jesus said. If we're going to do that, then it's going to involve taking a close examination of the fact that we can know the truth.
But by the time we've done so, we, we can know the truth to a T. Certainty. Reality. Responsibility. Necessity. And it will all lead to liberty. But we begin by looking at the fact that when we discuss truth, we are talking about reality. To know the truth is indeed life's reality. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? John 8, uh, 18, 38. Hmm. 1938, rather. What is truth? Truth is fact. Truth is conformity to evidence, to fact, to actuality. Truth is reality. Now, absolute truth faces facts. The dismissal of absolute truth is an abandonment of facts. And those that dismiss the notion of absolute truth have espoused at least to some degree the idea of postmodernism. I know it's a big word. I don't use it in my everyday language either. But we need to have a little idea of what it is. Postmodernism is a mindset that pushes back against modernism. Modernism was a worldview that embraced everything empirical, tangible, measurable. Postmodernism swings the pendulum completely the other way. With postmodernism, there's the influences of postmodernism on art, literature, architecture. That's a conversation for another time. In my opinion, nap time would be a great opportunity. But for our study, the impact of postmodernism as a worldview has to be examined because as a worldview, postmodernism rejects absolute and universal truth. To the postmodernist, truth, absolute truth, and empirical science are simply products of Western ideas. And therefore, any other culture that has any other view of reality, well, that's just as valid and just as embraceable as the idea of empirical evidence, a Western idea. When Isaiah said some 3,000 years ago, come let us reason together. Hmm. When we think about this idea of postmodernism, we need to realize something. The rationale is just a little irrational. See, for the postmodernist, the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth. Hmm, that seems like a conundrum. You ask a postmodernist, is truth absolute? He's on the horns of a dilemma. Because if he says, I absolutely know that there is absolutely no absolute truth, he has espoused an absolute truism. No. But if he says, well, there may be truth, then he has abandoned the premise of relativism. He's abandoned his entire worldview. Accepting uh, absolute truth faces facts. Absence of truth rejects reality. Think about this. Truth is fact. If there is no fact, then nothing can be believed. But if there is no fact, there is no fiction. Therefore, everything can be believed. The postmodern thought says we cannot believe anything and we must believe everything. Can you believe that? Truth is reality. If there is no truth, there is no reality. If there is no reality, there is no sanity. But if there is no sanity, there is no insanity. It's enough to drive a person nuts, isn't it? Accepting truth 
Now that is fundamental to faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith involves evidence. Faith stands on evidence, and it's the evidence of God's Word. God's Word is truth, as Brother Keith Mosier so beautifully and clearly articulated in the last session. God's Word is truth. It supplies evidence. We can stand on that evidence. Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, the Word of Christ. We stand on the evidence of God's Word. The Bible swells with evidence of its integrity, reliability, and accuracy. We look at its historical accuracy, its scientific foreknowledge, its perfect consistency, fulfilled prophecy. The objective investigator who examines the Bible's validity can arrive at no conclusion except to say that this is trustworthy. Can I get one amen? No, oh, you gave me too many. I just asked for one. This is truth. We can count on it. And it is indeed fundamental to faith. For you think about the gospel message. The gospel declares the death of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, I declare unto you the gospel, Paul said, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, verse 3. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, verse 4. And He was seen, verse 5. And He was seen, Verse 6, he was seen, verse 7, he was seen, verse 8. Four times in four verses, Paul emphasizes the fact that Christ was seen. Brethren, the, the basics of the gospel do not stop at 1 Corinthians 15, 4. They go through verse 8 and they emphasize the fact that we have proof for what we believe. Our faith stands on evidence, fact, truth. Now, this postmodern mindset rejects truth and embraces emotional feelings, but biblical faith stands on evidence. It's been said, facts are stubborn things. So is truth. Because truth is fact. Truth is reality. Ye shall know the truth. That's life's reality. Ye shall know the truth. It's man's necessity. The question was asked in a fictitious court. Uh, the statement was made, rather. You, you can't handle the truth. And, and it's true. It's so true for so many, they cannot handle it. In fact, when Jesus said, ye shall know the truth, he was speaking to skeptics who could not handle it. When John recorded Christ's words in his gospel account, he penned this gospel record emphasizing knowing and knowledge to combat an arrogant false doctrine embraced by people who likewise could not handle truth. Now, whether we're talking about Jesus' audience, John's audience, or the audience of today, let there be no doubt the need for truth is universal. As Paul penned, God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. We all need it. Let's think about those three audiences. First John's, then Christ's, then ours. The know-it-alls need the truth. John wrote in order to convince and convict. John 20, verse 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Or 1 John 5, 13, his first epistle, these things write unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. John's writings combated doubt. 
And the reason he combated doubt is because there was a false doctrine brewing and stewing in his day that would come to full fruition after the apostolic age that sought to instill doubt and replace true confidence with false confidence. The second century writer Irenaeus describes John's first gospel as having been written to combat or remove that error of the knowledge falsely so-called. <laughs> that was Irenaeus's none-too-flattering way of describing the Gnostics. Gnostics. Their error was not just one body of doctrine. The word Gnostic is sort of like the word Protestant today. If I say Protestant, you still do not know what that individual believes. Protestant is less a cohesive body of doctrine and more a, a, a worldview or mindset that leads to doctrine and arrives at doctrines. With the Gnostics, they were subdivided into sects and denominations. But the common denominator among the Gnostics was this claim of special knowledge. Secretive. Mystical. Mysterious. And if you don't know it, Mm, you're uninitiated. It did not need proving. No, 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 no point in proving it. I just know it. With the Gnostics, they looked down their noses at those that they deemed as not in the know. They were arrogant. They were imaginative. <laughs> but they were not holding the truth. If it comes right down to a simple description, the Gnostics were... Uh, uh, Gnosticism was imaginative arrogance in a religious robe or the ancient religious version of I know something you don't know. And it was just as mature. As a matter of fact, when you think of Gnosticism, just let that little slogan run through your mind. I know something you don't know and I don't have to prove it. I know it and that's all that matters. I've said it, therefore it is. By the way, anyone run into that mindset when we start talking about today's political environment? I know something you don't... Well, if you don't agree with me, it's just because you don't know what I know. Hmm. Don't have to prove a thing. With the Gnostics, nothing was up for debate. Nothing was up for discussion. Nothing needed to be tested. Nothing needed to be tangible. It was just a matter of what they claimed. John penned his gospel account to deal with the false doctrine wherein the know-it-alls needed to know that they could actually know the truth, but it was going to involve objectivity and evidence. At the same time, John's gospel record and his epistles were written to comfort humble brethren who were honest enough not to claim clairvoyance who were honest enough to, not to claim some special knowledge. And as a result, they were belittled by their Gnostic acquaintances. The know-it-alls need to know the truth. Now let's think about Jesus' audience. John 8 is a chapter wherein the idea of truth is the golden thread throughout the fabric of the text. We think about a brief overview of the chapter. John 8, 1 through 11, Jesus perceived truth even when others concealed it. What do we mean by that? Well, Jesus is dealing with skeptics who wanted to doubt it all. And the chapter begins with that woman caught in adultery 
Jesus knew the hidden goals of the Pharisees that came and thrust her in the midst and wanted to question him about her. He knew the hidden guilt. He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. By the way, there was an innate hypocrisy taking place here. He even demonstrated to her his grace. Neither do I condemn thee. Go thy way and sin no more. He knew the truth of what they did not want to admit, and he brought it to the forefront. Jesus perceived truth when others tried to conceal it, and he promised truth when others sought to contend with it. He declared himself to be the true light. I'm the light of the world. They wanted to dispute his integrity. Oh, you testify of yourself. Your witness is not true. He then spoke of true life. Except you believe that I'm he, you shall die in your sins. They wanted to say, oh, oh, just who are you? They disputed his identity. Then he spoke of true liberty. If you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. Oh, we're Abraham's seed. We've got all the freedom and liberty we need. We've never been in bondage. They disputed their history. Jesus told the truth about light, life, and liberty, and they wanted to debate. Or you move forward from John 8, 31 and 32. You look at the rest of the chapter. Jesus proclaimed truth to those who condemned it. He pointed out to them, if you were free, you would not keep sinning. He that uh, committeth sin is a servant of sin. If you were Abraham's seed, you would not keep scheming against the son. Yet there they were plotting and conniving. If you belong to God, you would do the works of God. But he says, you're of your father the devil. And the works of your father you will do. They were devilish. And because they were so devilish, they wanted to discredit him. Oh, you're the one that has a devil. They wanted to dishonor him, claiming him to be a liar. And ultimately, they wanted to destroy him. John 8, 59, they took up stones to slay him because he said, before Abraham was, I am. Throughout the entirety of the chapter, it is truth that is on trial. Jesus is declaring it. And these devil children are following after lies and murder. They're doubters. They refuse to believe every word he spoke, every truth he taught, every promise he made, every principle he presented. Yet Jesus says to this audience, If you continue in my word, you are my disciples, and ye shall know the truth. The know-it-alls needed the truth. The doubt-it-alls needed the truth. In our world, we've got a group that we can call the accepted-alls. They are the ones that think that everything is just all right. It doesn't matter what you believe, it'll be okay. The pitfall of postmodernism is that with no truth, there's no moral standard. With no moral standard, there is no right, nor is there a wrong, which means everything is just all right. Now you take this forward into where it leads with only one-third of Americans believing that there is absolute truth. No wonder the majority of our society has trouble determining how to determine right from wrong. Keep that in mind. Our society that has rejected absolute truth struggles to know how to determine right from wrong. We've got the answer to that. Now, when this gets applied to religion, you have an involvement of what's called pluralism. You know, find the church of your choice. 
Follow the faith of your choice. We're all going to heaven. We're just taking different roads. No church is wrong because everything's all right. As long as you're sincere, the, what's right for you might be right for you, but it might not be right for someone else. No religion is guaranteed to be right. Hmm. Jesus rejected pluralism. Do you remember his words, John 14, 6? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's just one way to the pearly gates. Jesus is it. Galatians 1, 6, Paul said, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another, another of a different kind, gospel. Which is not another of the same kind, Galatians 1, 7, with every them that trouble you and pervert the gospel of Christ. There's only one way. There is only one gospel. Or we think about Ephesians chapter 4. There's one body, one spirit, even as you're called to one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all. Jesus sounded rather exclusive, didn't he? There's one God, the Father. One God, the Son. One God, the Spirit. One faith that follows, one hope of heaven, one baptism that submits, and one body into which a soul enters upon submitting to that faith and baptism. And what is that body, pray tell, Mr. Apostle Paul, Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He's head of the body, the church. Christ's word declares, his apostles announce there's only one this idea of pluralism is contrary to everything the New Testament declares. But the problem with pluralism is it not only goes from denying the exclusivity of the Lord's church, it's progressive. It is a slippery slope. Because after denying the exclusivity of the church, it begins rejecting the exclusivity of Scripture. And then the need for fellowship altogether. 56% of American citizens, 64% of people in Generation Y or Millennials believe that no one text is the full body of truth, but that all of these different religious texts and bodies of work are really teaching the same thing just in different ways. Pluralism. It goes from saying one church is as good as another to one faith is as good as another to one God is as good as another. Now, we need to heed some timeless warnings because the danger of the know-it-alls, the doubt-it-alls, and the accept-it-alls are not limited to the times that we've examined. We think about Paul's timeless truths that he penned to Timothy. He warned Timothy about some know-it-alls, 1 Timothy 6.20, when he spoke of those that... Uh, have that science falsely so-called. Hmm. He warned Timothy about some doubt-it-alls when he spoke of those that are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. No matter what they learn, they never are convinced. And yes, Paul spoke of the accepted-alls and the fact that those that are accepted-alls tend to accept everything except the truth. 2 Timothy 4, 3 the time will come when they shall heap to themselves, after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They'll turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. And that's where this pluralistic, relativistic, postmodern mindset leads. The truth is simply dismissible. It's been said that the devil's greatest trick was convincing the world he didn't exist. 
Hmm. It's worth a thought, isn't it? You think about how he is the father of lies, John 8, 44. Every time truth is dismissed, a lie is accepted. If there's no truth, there's no lie. If there's no lie, then there's no devil, the father of lies. As a matter of fact, if we come to the conclusion that there is no truth, then there is no lie. And if there is no lie, there is no God who forbade lying and who cannot lie. Every time truth is dismissed as relative, the devil smiles. And brethren, we should weep. The greatest lie man ever believed is that truth does not exist. All need truth. Everyone. The know-it-alls, the doubt-it-alls, the accept-it-alls. Yesterday, today, and forever, they will need the truth. This is life's reality. It's man's necessity. And yes, to know the truth is indeed man's responsibility. There's something interesting in the construction of the text. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, John 8, 31, then are ye my disciples indeed, truly, aletheos. Then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth. Now, wait, wait a minute, Lord. If I continue in your word, then I already know the truth, right? Because thy word is truth. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Right? I, 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 I know the truth first, then I continue in your word. But Jesus said, continue in the word, then know the truth. Which one's right? Isn't something backward here? Is a wire crossed? That is a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Let's think about it. First, to know the truth is going to require, yes, accepting the truth. Jesus' audience had already done that. Those to whom he spoke were described in verse 30 as believing on him. As he said these things, many believed on him. Jesus is speaking to those who are out at the beginnings of faith. John 8, 31, then said Jesus to them that believed on him. These have already heard and accepted the truth of what he has to say, at least at the outset. They have the beginnings and seedlings of faith. They've acknowledged, they've accepted truth. So whatever Jesus is describing here, it's not just acknowledgement and acceptance of truth. There's something more to it. What is it? No, to know the truth required accepting the truth, yes, but also abiding in truth. He said, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples and ye shall know the truth. Continue in his word. The word translated continue, the Greek word is meno. It can also be translated abide. You want to know an easy way to remember that one? You put a meno on a hook, you toss it in the water and you just sit there. You abide. You sit and you wait. And if you're me, you wait all day because you never catch anything anyway. Meno, to abide, to endure, not depart, to wait. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, not changing, not leaving, seedling faith is only the beginning. There's to be a, a steadfastness, a stick to a submission to hear and to believe are incomplete. Faith requires action. We think about Matthew 7 beginning in verse 24. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll show you what he's like. But he that hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I'll show you what he's like. John, uh, Luke rather, 6.46. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Or you consider Paul's words to Titus. Titus 2, 16, uh, 1.16. 
These profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. They claim to know Him, but their life says otherwise. Are then there the words of the Apostle John, 1 John 2, 4, when he said, If we profess to know Him and keep not His commandments, we lie and do not the truth. No, there are those that claim to have faith, but their lives say otherwise. To know the truth means to abide in truth. That's faith in action. This is man's responsibility. As a side note, this know the truth means accepting the truth, abiding in the truth, and that truth means abiding in Christ's words. We are not discussing abiding in the words of man. Now, brethren, let's face it. We, as members of the Lord's church, have no problem applying this idea to the creeds and catechisms, uh, catechisms, conventions and councils, to the doctrines and covenants and traditions and beliefs of the denominational mindset. Colossians 3.17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Wonder. How many people are more prone to quote the name Woods, McGarvey, or Campbell than they are Jesus, Peter, or Paul? I wonder, what are we more likely to hear from some pulpits? The uninspired, speak where the Bible speaks, or the inspired, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11. We have a sickness among us There are too many members of the Lord's church that are turning it into just another denomination. They're the church of Christers because everything they believe is just based on what someone else has said in their ear instead of what they've learned from Scripture. Brethren, are we holding to Christ's words? Is He our standard, our one and only standard? Accept it. Abide in it. His words... This is our responsibility. To know the truth is moreover man's certainty. A question remains. Now wait a minute. If, if Jesus, when he said, ye shall know the truth, if he's not talking about a mental recognition, if he's not talking about merely accepting the truth, because I have to accept the truth before I can abide in it, and then abiding in it leads to this knowing the truth, well, what did he mean by knowing the truth? That's going to be found in the meaning of the word translated know. The Greek word is gnosko. The Gnostics got their name from it. They claim to have that special knowledge, and it means knowledge. The classic usage of this word pertains to a knowledge that's not just perceived, not just conceptually recognized. It describes a knowledge that is grounded in personal experience. It's not to know by proximity. Oh, I know all about construction. My my cousin's a contractor. It's not just to know by native insight, oh, I I, I was just born knowing how to throw a baseball. No, this is personal experience. We're talking about personal experience. We're talking about living it to the point that it changes me. We are talking about the personal experience that trains us. The Hebrews writer hit on this idea. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 12, he said, When for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need one teach you again, what be the first principles of the oracles of God. You have become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. Whoever uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. He is a babe. We hear so many talk about, oh, that's a milk passage, that's a meat passage. But the writer of Hebrews 
was indicating that the difference between milk and meat was not in the difficulty of the passage. It was in the sharpness of the teeth and the strength of the jaws. And if my teeth have not been cut on the study and usage of God's Word, then I will not get out of it what I could obtain if I were more involved in it. Which is why he says in verse 14, Strong meat, give me a steak, belongs to them that are of full age, who by reason of use have their senses exercised, trained to discern both good and evil. They've put God's Word to work. They've exercised it in their personal lives through personal experience to the point that it trains them, changes them, transforms them. Connect this with the words of Paul, Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove. The Greek word there is dakimazo, and it carries the idea of know by experience. That you might prove, know by experience, you know because you've done it the good and acceptable and perfect Word of God. Now, there are some things that I know by observation. There are some things I know by experience. I can remember knowing by observation that it would not be a good idea to hit that thumb with a hammer. I'd seen Dad do it. But you know, I didn't realize just how valuable that was until I learned it by experience. You shall know the truth. You'll know it by experience. And it changes you. Isaiah 55, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, perhaps one of the most misused among us. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, verse 6. Call upon him while he's near. Let the unrighteous forsake his way, the wicked his thoughts. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And here come our brethren saying, see, God thinks on a level up here. We think on a level down here and we just can't understand him. That's not what the point is. The point that's being made in Isaiah 55. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. God tells the wicked, forsake your ways. He tells the unrighteous, abandon those thoughts. And he says, adopt mine. Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. But the point was they should have been. As the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are above those lowly, unrighteous, wicked ways you're following. But just as rain comes down from heaven and doesn't return, but it gives seed to the sower, bread to the eater, it waters the ground, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. God doesn't send rain for it to ricochet back up. He sends rain with a purpose. He does not send His Word for Him to ricochet back up to Him. He sends it with a purpose. And that purpose is for Him, uh, is for it to instill, implant, and change me. Because when I continue in His Word, when I live it, His ways become my ways. His thoughts become my thoughts. I get to be like him. New creature. A new man. No, it's not just I know the truth, cognitively, cognitively perceive it, I understand it. Because I've let the rubber meet the road. Ye shall know the truth. And when you have a personal experience, putting it into practice, you can be confident. You can be certain. Connect that with 1 John 1, 7, when we walk in the light 
as He is in the light. That's continuing in His Word. That's being His disciples indeed. We know the truth and we can count on that forgiveness. Fellowship one with another in the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us of all sin. To know the truth, reality, a necessity. Yes, it's a responsibility, it's a certainty, and it gives us liberty. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus did not describe freedom from communism, freedom from imperialism or Nazism. Jesus described freedom from something far more sinister, far more dangerous. We're free, we're Abraham's seed. He that committeth sin is the slave of sin, John 8, 34. He's describing freedom from sin, freedom from the, uh, the dungeon of doubt that so often ensnares and entraps and lures people toward iniquity. Freedom from the trappings of temptation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life, because when we have put His Word into practice, we are able by that exercise to discern good and evil. Remember Hebrews 5.14? Remember how most Americans can't discern good and evil? It's because they're not putting God's Word to work. Too many Christians can't tell the difference either. And it's for the same reason. But when we abide, oh, we're, we're free from that dungeon of doubt, from the trappings of sin and all its allure. And yes, from the shackles of sin. The shackles of guilt, they cause us to keep looking back with regret. The shackles of routine that, that tend to convince those that are in sin, oh, you have to stay here, this is all you know. The shackles of environment that convince people you're surrounded by this. It's in your family, it's in your job, you have to stay in this. No, when we abide in the truth, we will not be bound by those shackles. We can continue we can live it, and we can escape that iniquity. Ye shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. Truth is truth no matter what. Truth is truth no matter how often a lie is repeated. It's been said it's easier to believe a lie repeated a thousand times than a truth you've only heard once. But the truth still has more power. Truth is truth no matter how firmly a lie is believed. It was Thomas Jefferson who said, he who, knows, he, he who knows nothing is closer to the truth than he who whose mind is filled with falsehood and errors. Truth is truth no matter how long a lie has existed. JFK said the great enemy of the truth is very often not a lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, pervasive, and unrealistic. Truth is truth no matter what. No matter how many ignore it, no matter how, many, how few follow it, truth is still truth. The truth is Jesus died. The truth is Jesus rose. The truth is Jesus left proof. And the truth is Jesus wants you where he is. And to get there is simple. Hearing that gospel message, Believing it, except you believe that I am He shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. Repenting of the sins that necessitated His death in the first place, 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Confessing, yes, He's the Son of God, Romans 10, 10. And being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, forgiveness, release from sins, Acts 2, 38. 
this morning, maybe you're a child of God who has not been abiding in His Word. You've not continued with Him. Are you ready to come home? Perhaps you've never obeyed the gospel. You've never obeyed the truth. Are you ready? You can understand it. You can do it. You can know it. Are you 